had a birthday last week. I thank you for all those that reminded me how old I'm getting. Um, but I think it must be true because I sat back and watched the uh, baby dedication and bawled like a baby. Now I have to follow that. Um, so we're just going to cry a lot this morning, just so you probably know. But they're tears of joy. Um, I welcome you today if you're a guest. We're so glad to have you today, and especially with these families that we celebrated with. Uh, I want to get into the message today by telling you about a time a few weeks ago back at uh, Thanksgiving when my uh, family went on a cruise, and we ended up down in Mexico. And on one particular day, we went on one of those uh, excursions where they take you offshore so you can snorkel. And they take us out in this little boat, and they drop us off on this uh, rock formation, crystal clear water. And they give you a mask and a snorkel, throw you out of the boat, and they basically say, we'll be back in an hour. <laughs> so on the rocks, they had these young guys, local guys there, helping people kind of get in and out of the water because it was actually pretty, pretty uh, steep terrain and pretty difficult to uh, navigate all the rocks that were there. So they helped us kind of wade out into the water. And as I began to snorkel, it dawned on me that they did not give us one of those little uh, life vests you know, that you can use when you're snorkeling to kind of keep you afloat. And uh, if you don't have one of those and you're old, uh, you can't float quite as well or as long, and it takes a lot of energy. Well, as I got out into the water, I thought I was doing pretty good, but my sister looked over at me and she said, uh, are you doing okay or are you, are you all right? Now, being a man, my typical response, of course, was, of course, I'm great. I'm in super shape. There's no problem at all. Inside, I was thinking, boy, I really am getting tired dog paddling like this, okay? And then things went from kind of just a little challenging to pretty hairy. I started bobbing in the water kind of like a cork. And out of nowhere, this, uh, one of these young guys uh, just kind of appeared out of nowhere, swam up beside me, and he said, take my hand. Again, I wasn't going to let this little whippersnapper, you know, <laughs> Uh, think I was drowning. So I said, no, 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 I'm fine. <laughs> to which he said, no, 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 you in trouble. <laughs> and finally, at the point of exhaustion, I just reached out and I took his hand and he pulled me over to a rope that they had pulled out into the water several hundred feet. And I just kind of used that rope and repelled back to the rocks. And it struck me after I was catching my breath on that rock formation that I might not actually be the best judge of whether or not I need to be rescued. I might need to be saved, I might need to be rescued, and I don't even know that I need to be rescued. My pride that day almost got in my way of being saved. I don't know if you've ever heard of a guy by the name of Francis Collins. He's the head of the National Institutes of Health. Before that, he was the leader of a project called the Human Genome Project. And he was one of the most, and is one of the most brilliant scientists in the world. And he talked uh, uh, one time about how he got his PhD in science. After that, he became a doctor because he wanted to be really helpful practically. But Francis didn't believe in God. He was a very much a skeptic. But part of his practice in medicine was that he would have to talk with elderly folks who lived in the deep rural south. They weren't nearly as educated as him. But he began to notice that as they uh, kind of faced death in the eyes, that they had a peace about them. They had an ability to face suffering and challenges in life, and they had a hope that he, Francis Collins, did not have. 
He said it was one day when one of those patients looked at him and said, Dr. Collins, what's going to happen to you when you die? And he realized for the first time in his life he did not have a clue. He thought he knew, but he had dismissed the whole God thing and the faith thing and the Jesus thing. He never really considered it. So for the first time in his life, he got serious about it. He began to open a Bible and he began to read a guy by the name of C.S. Lewis. And over time, through both his emotions and his intellect, he believed that there, there must be a God and that, that he has revealed himself through Jesus and that he needed this thing called grace in his life. We've been talking in this series about whatever happens in life, that God is at work in our circumstances. He's trying to bring about in us a better character to not just do good stuff to us, but he's trying to do good stuff in us. We've been using as a verse, hopefully a verse that you've now memorized as we are now into week six of the series. It's found in Romans chapter eight. And again, if you could look at it just one more time on the screen, Paul writes these wonderful words. He says, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. You see, we are not in control of anything in our life. We may think we are, we may like to think we are, but we have a way of finding out that life proves otherwise. Today, we're going to talk about what happens in our life when grace happens. When Jesus comes to rescue people, oftentimes it catches them by surprise. They don't even realize that they need to be saved, that they really need it. This is going to be a very simple talk. I just want to talk about how grace can happen to you and that you may need to receive it and accept it more than you think you do. I really do believe this could be one of the most important things that we ever talk about in this church. The fact that grace happens in life, whether we know it or not, is a very important statement. There's one in the Bible also written by Paul. It says this, For it is by grace you have been saved, rescued, through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Obviously, by now you've seen all these ladders. We're not a church of Latter-day Saints, just so you know. But, <laughs> yeah. That's as good as it's going to get, I can promise you. <laughs> Instead, these ladders kind of represent two different ways to do your life. Just kind of visually today, I want you to think of it this way. One of the ways you can do your life is the way of performance. Uh, Paul and a lot of other writers talk about this as works. The other way is the way of grace. Two ways you can try to save your life. And by the way, all of us are trying to save ourselves. Uh, this word save has kind of become a, kind of a little strange word in Christianity. It's kind of like a cliche word. It's lost a lot of meaning. But in the Bible, it really meant to be healed or to be delivered or rescued. You know, it's something that we all need. I need it. I need to be healed of my aloneness and my guilt and my regrets. I need to be healed of fear or fear of death or life or whatever it is. And one of the most common ways we try to save ourselves, whether we realize it or not, is that we try to prove our existence by climbing up a ladder. It may be a ladder of success or a ladder of improvement or a ladder of impressing other people. There's a fabulous movie many years ago. Uh, some of you may remember this movie called Chariots of Fire. 
And one of the characters in this movie is a sprinter. He's a racer. He, he, he runs in the Olympics. And this guy is so driven, he's haunted by his success. And he talks about going to the Olympics and having this huge weight on his shoulders. And this is what he says. He says, when that gun goes off, I raise my eyes and look down that quarter mile. And I have ten lonely seconds to justify my existence. Now the question is, what if you don't win that race? And even if you do win that race, eventually it wears off, right? It always wears off. See, there's this strange thing that as we try to climb ladders in life, it seems like we can never quite make it to the top. No matter what we do, we can't make our egos satisfied. We even now give kids little ladders. And we tell them, hey guys, keep climbing higher and higher and harder and harder as much as you can. This is an interesting question. They asked uh, back in 1950, now think about this. 67 years ago, they asked the question of America. Do you consider yourself to be a very important person? In 1950, 12% of everybody in America considered themselves to be a very important person. Now, let's just take a guess here. Turn to somebody to you, uh, next to you. And in, in 2005, 55 years later, they asked that same question. What do you think? Do you think it went up or down the number of people who think they're important? Just ask somebody beside you. What do you think? Okay. How many of you say up? Okay, up. The correct answer is not only did it go up, but in 2005, think about this, 80% of all people say that they're a very important person. We want our kids to be very important people, so we give them ladders. Get good grades, study hard, go to school, go to college, go to grad school, make mom and dad proud. Did you know that in 1966, 19% of all high school students had a GPA of an A or A minus? By 2013, do you know that it's 63% in America? 63% of our kids have A's or A minuses. 150% increase. Now here's the question I would ask. Are our kids 150% happier? I hear kids say this. I feel like a failure. But I can't let anybody see me. I feel like I'm so tired, but I can't let people know that I'm tired. Why? Because we keep trying to climb ladders. Now the Bible has a diagnosis about this, and this is a very hard thing to hear, but I'll just say it. The Bible uses a word that we don't use a lot anymore, and it's called sin. Again, another word that has lost a lot of meaning in our day. The idea of sin, friends, is not that you have broken a rule or that you've done something for some weird reason that some religion says you cannot do. It's really sad that religion has all these rules. Sin is simply putting the wrong thing at the top of the ladder. Pastor Tim Keller puts it like this. I think this is a great way of saying it. Sin is taking a good thing and making it the ultimate thing. It is taking something that I will become enslaved to and it will destroy me. And the real kicker about sin is that sometimes it gets inside of me and I'm not even aware that it's there. 
sometimes it messes me up and I don't even realize that I messed up. Several years ago, I had to officiate at a wedding ceremony and everything went perfect during the ceremony. Wonderful. And afterwards, they always want you to take a few pictures, you know, with the bride and groom and the wedding party. And so I was standing there with them and we were taking pictures and the photographer was doing their thing. And one of the groomsmen came up behind me and he whispered in my ear and he said, Pastor, he said, I think your pants now have built-in air conditioning. Now, I've been to weddings, and I've had people whisper a lot of things in my ear, but that was pretty crazy. And I looked back at my pants, and I literally had somehow ripped the entire seat of my pants out and had performed the entire ceremony with ripped pants. Now, the wedding party could see that. Fortunately, the congregation couldn't see that. Everybody in the wedding party knew, except who? Except me. The one guy who needed to know that split pants happens <laughs> didn't know. See, sin happens. It's part of the dynamic of sin that when it happens, I'm likely not to always know it or admit it. Now, every now and then I'll feel guilty about something or I'll feel, you know, kind of a you know, a twinge of something. But there's so much arrogance in me and so much pride and so much self-centeredness and listen, so much self-deception that sometimes I don't even know it. This is why the psalmist, when he wrote these words, he said, but who can discern their own errors? Forgive God my hidden faults. One of the weird things about this word sin is that I'm always aware of yours, but I'm very, very unaware of mine, Right? There's a goofy story kind of illustrates this point. It's about uh, I have a dream and I go to heaven. And there are all kinds of hallways throughout heaven. And the walls are filled with clocks or what looks like clocks anyway. And underneath every single one of these uh, clock-like devices is the name of every human being on earth. So I asked St. Peter about it and he says, well, those are actually not clocks. They're actually centimeters. Everybody has one. Every time you sin, your centimeter gives a little tick. So I start walking around heaven. I start looking. I look for everybody's centimeter. I look, I find Robbie Waddell's. <laughs> After about 30 seconds, it ticks. After about 20 seconds more, it ticks. I'm a little shocked. I go over, I find Carol Aranaga's centimeter. About 10 seconds, it ticks. Another five seconds, it ticks. <laughs> Then I find my wife, Robbins. It's just going tick, 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 tick. <laughs> Everybody, I see all of your centimeters. And the crazy thing is, I can't find mine. I look and I look and I can't find it. Finally, I go up to St. Peter and I said, Peter, does this mean what I think it means? Does this mean that I'm not sinning anymore? He said, are you crazy, man? They keep yours in the office. They're using it for a fan. <laughs> can discern their faults. See, I see other people climbing ladders, but I'd never climb a ladder. Listen, sin is not breaking rules. It is putting the wrong thing at the top of the ladder and chasing it. It's climbing the wrong ladder. It's this irreversible, inevitable, unconquerable, very often indiscernible to me tendency to foul up life for me and for everybody else. And every once in a while, I get that little twinge of guilt 
that little pang of self-doubt. Usually it's when I think that there is this holy God and supposedly he knows everything. And the reality of who I am compared to that holy God is pretty sobering. See, we all have this tendency to think, guys, that there's this problem, but I can handle it on my own. I'll take care of it on my own. And he, Paul says this is exactly what he means when he talks about works. And whether you climb the religious ladder or the business ladder or, you know, the career ladder, whatever that is, what we tend to do is we tend to always compare ourselves to other people. We'll say something like, there's good people in the world and there's bad people in the world. And for some crazy reason, I'm always better than everybody else because I only look at the bad people. You know, I go to church sometimes, at least a few times. I read the Bible often. I'll give some money and help the poor. I'm not nearly as bad as everybody else. It's very interesting in our day, the way we approach this, is we'll say something like, you know, I'm a good person because I have the right ideology. I'm opposed to intolerance. I'm opposed to bigotry. I'm opposed to militarism. I'm opposed to injustice. I mean, there are lots of bad people who aren't opposed to those things. But that never changes the tendency to foul up, to mess up. One of the big things right now is technology. There are people who truly believe that technology is going to finally save our race. That one day we're going to have enough education and enough technology and enough affluence and enough opportunity. Here's what I'm finding out, and it's a really weird thing. No one has yet invented an app that will correct the human heart. Nobody has ever been able to correct or make an app that will correct the human heart. And into all of this darkness, into all of this mess, comes Jesus. And Jesus says, let me talk to you about another way. Paul says, this now is not the way of works or ladders or climbing. This is the way of grace. This is not being good enough. This is not pretending like there's not a problem in your life. Grace is not a ladder you climb up. Grace is a ladder that Jesus came down. He says, now I'm going to give you this offer of a lifetime. And he would tell all kinds of stories about this. One of them is found in uh, the Bible. And it's actually uh, kind of recounted or told uh, through kind of like a modern day parable by a guy named Philip Yancey. He's written a lot of books, but one of the Yancey's uh, books, one of my favorites, is a book called What's So Amazing About Grace? And in it, he writes, one of Jesus' stories about grace uh, made it into three different Gospels. There were slightly different versions of it, but basically the same story. He says, my favorite version, though, appeared in another source entirely, the Boston Globe newspaper in June 1990 of a most unusual wedding reception. Accompanied by her fiancé, a woman went to the Hyatt Hotel in downtown Boston and ordered the meal, the reception meal. They poured over the menu. They made selections of china and silver. They pointed out the pictures of the flower arrangements that they wanted on the tables. They both had a very expensive taste, and the bill came to $13,000. Now, that's 27 years ago, so today it'd be more like probably forty dollars or $50,000. After leaving a check for half the amount as a down payment, the couple went home to flip through the book of wedding announcements. 
The day the wedding announcements were supposed to hit the mailbox, the potential groom got cold feet. I'm just not sure, he said. This is a big commitment. Let's think about this, hun, for a little longer. When his angry fiance returned to the Hyatt to cancel the dinner reception, the events manager could not have been more understanding. The same thing happened to me, hun. And she told the story of her own broken engagement. About the refund, however, she had bad news. The contract is binding. You're only entitled to a $1,300 refund. So you have two options. Forfeit the rest of the down payment or go ahead with the banquet. I'm really sorry. I can't do anything else. It seemed crazy, but the more the jilted bride thought about it, the more she liked the idea of going ahead with the party anyway. Not a wedding reception, mind you, but a big blowout. Ten years before, that same woman had been living in a homeless shelter. She had gotten back on her feet, found a great job, set aside a sizable nest egg, and now she had this wild notion of using her savings to treat the down and outs of Boston to a night on the town. So it was in June of 1990 that the Hyatt Hotel in downtown Boston had a party such as it had never seen before. The hostess changed the menu to boneless chicken in honor of the groom. <laughs> they sent invitations to rescue missions and homeless shelters. That warm summer night, people who were used to peeling half-gnawed pizza off the cardboard dined instead on chicken cordon bleu. Hyatt waiters and tuxedos served hors d'oeuvres to senior citizens propped up by crutches and aluminum walkers. Bag ladies, vagrants, addicts took one night off from the hard life on the sidewalks and sipped champagne, ate chocolate cake, and danced to a big band medley late into the night. Jesus would tell these stories. The kingdom of God is like a dinner party and people who haven't earned it, people who haven't climbed high enough up the ladder are going to be there. Why? One answer. Grace, grace, grace. You cannot get in the door without grace. You can't justify your existence enough to get an invitation. Paul put it like this. It is God who justifies. Who is it that condemns? No one. Now, we're told in Christianity that the primary way, the primary expression of grace by God is Jesus who comes not in the form of a ladder, but in the form of a cross. People think, what in the world is this cross thing about? Let me try to help you with this. I want you to think about the cross today very simply with two dynamics. One is a vertical dynamic, and one of it is a horizontal dynamic. There's a horizontal beam, and there is a vertical beam. The vertical beam that runs up and down reminds me that I have a relationship with God. And one of the things that is pretty clear is that we all mess up, we all foul up, we all cheat, lie, we gossip, we just do. And what scripture teaches is that that leads to death. Whether it's physical death, spiritual death, it leads to death. I cannot seem to ever pay that debt. I went through Chick-fil-A a couple weeks ago and I ordered and I got to the window and I realized I would forgot to order a drink. So I told the young guy at the window I needed a drink and when he gave me the drink and he came back, I offered him the money just to pay for the drink because I would already paid for the other food 
And he looked at me and he said, actually, he said, you don't have to pay for that. He says, this one's on the house. Isn't that a great expression? This one's on the house. Now, did that mean that it was free? No. It was free for me, but somebody was going to have to pay for it. Who was going to have to pay for it? Chick-fil-A. They're going to pay for it. Had to pay for the drink, had to pay for the cup, had to pay for the labor. And they did that really for no reason at all. They didn't really get anything out of it except this great promotional story that I'm telling now on Sunday morning. <laughs> and you can't even go there because they're closed on Sunday. Imagine, listen now, imagine now we've gone back there the next day and gotten a drink and says, you know, I can't pay for this one. And then I did it the next day and the next day and the next day. For a year, that'd be 365 drinks. Listen, for a decade, that'd be 3,600. Now think about this for a minute. This is kind of countercultural. But a lot of people, they just don't stop and think about this. Think about sin for a moment. What does your centimeter look like? How often do you think that baby is ticking? A psychologist named William Backus cites one study that says the average, the average American practices deceit in one way or another, either through outright lies, misleading statements, or body language, the average American practices it 200 times a day. That's just one dimension of sin. Now listen, I don't even know if that's accurate. Let's say it's way overblown. Let's just give you a break. Let's just say that we do it 10 times a day. I mean, I'm telling you, I've seen some of you guys. That's very conservative, okay? <laughs> that would be 3,650 sins a year. That's 36,000 plus sins a decade. And if you live to be 70, in fact, let's just say 60 years. Let's not even count the first 10 years of your life when you're perfect, okay? Right? Let's just say 60 years. That, friends, is 200,000 sins. And it's not just things I do, it's just who I am. It's like a disease inside of me. And then I've got to somehow vertically have this relationship with God. And scripture says that this debt that I can't pay, this, this thing that I can't solve between me and God, God did that for me. And that brings us to the horizontal beam. And the way to think about the horizontal beam is that the arms of Jesus are these arms of love. In the cross, we see the ultimate expression of God's love for the human race. I'll tell you the greatest stories that people love more than anything else is when they tell a story or hear a story or watch a movie of sacrificial love where somebody loves another person and suffers for them enough, even willing to die for them. If you've ever seen the movie Saving Private Ryan, Tom Hanks plays this Christ figure who dies for another private, another soldier, who has never, ever merited that kind of sacrifice. If you've ever read the book or seen the movie Les Miserables, if you see the movie, you know that Jean Valjean, somebody who has sinned against so bad, and then somebody who chooses sin, who chooses a way of darkness. But in this blinding act of grace, this bishop says to him, when he's being arrested for thievery, he says to him, no, 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 you forgot the best gift. You forgot the candlesticks that I gave you. And he says, now I have bought your soul. 
you, Jean Valjean, must live for God. And then there is the inspector who's trying to climb this moral ladder. And he's overwhelmed by despair and ego. He ends up losing his life. I want to say this to you. The ultimate in question in your life will be, will you choose the ladder or will you choose the cross? Have you received grace? Listen, receiving grace is real different than receiving honors and achievement. We live in a kind of an achievement society. If you look at graduation, commencement uh, programs, many times you'll see a little asterisk at the bottom. And it will tell you which one of the graduates graduated with honors. There's usually cum laude, and there's summa cum laude, and there's magna cum laude. I was reading a story a couple weeks ago about a guy. He had a really, really tough life. He dropped out of school. He went through addictions, really messed up his life. And he met Christ, and a lot of his life turned around. He began to overcome addiction. His marriage actually was healed, and his wife and he began to have hope again. And he said in this article, he said, the only school I ever went to was a school of hard knocks. Anybody ever heard of that school? He said, that's the only school I went to. He said, I didn't graduate cum laude or magna cum laude or summa cum laude. He said, I graduated, thank you, laude. (laughs) Isn't that great? I want to say this clearly. No one is going to heaven cum laude. Nobody is going to heaven summa cum laude or magna cum laude. Everyone is going there, thank you, laude. My question now is, are you willing, have you, will you think about it seriously, getting off this ladder and just coming to the cross and saying, you know what, I'm going to accept grace. Grace happens. It's mysterious. It's overwhelming. It's explosive. It's scandalous. But it's real. I'm going to ask you this morning if you do something for me. We don't do this a lot at Oasis, but I'm going to ask you if you would to kind of close your eyes and just bow your heads for just a second. I just want to have like a 30-second moment between you and God. Listen, I know how this is. I know in my own life it's offensive sometimes. I mean, it's embarrassing a little bit. I don't think I need to be saved, but I've got this guy looking at me, and he's saying, no, 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 you in trouble. I'm just going to ask you, You may have been going to church a long time or may have been to church hardly any. But if you've never come to the cross and said, hey, I really, really want this thing called grace in my life. I really want to get off the ladder. You can do that. What I'm going to do is I'm just going to pray a prayer right now. And if you just like to, like, just in your mind, pray it along with me. Just mean it from your life to God. Just kind of take these words and apply them yourself. I'd like to do that for you. Here we go. Jesus, I want to get off the ladder. I've been trying to climb. I've been trying to justify my life through how good I am or my achievements or the kind of life I've been living or even the kind of life my parents or grandparents lived. I confess my sin. I confess my sin meter runs constantly. And I haven't found a way to fix it. 
So today, I come to the cross. I receive Jesus as the forgiver and the leader of my life. I want to start a new life. And with your help, I want to walk in grace and become more like Jesus in my life. I need your help, God. I surrender, God. Thank you for loving me, God. Amen.